From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode number 30. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password from Agile Bits. Put passwords in their place. Buy Citrix GoToMeeting. Make it easy to meet with your team wherever you need to, wherever you are. And buy MailRoute, a secure hosted email service for protection from viruses and spam. My name is Jason Snell. I normally don't read this part of the show because Mike Hurley does, but Mike is on vacation. And so as he, he couldn't take it. Two episodes in a row where he and I spoke to each other in person uh, face-to-face across a table, and he just couldn't take it. He he cracked up and had to be sent away uh, for for some uh, rest and relaxation to get his uh, get his head together. So instead, I have a guest uh, a guest star visiting me, and I believe this is the first time that he and I have shared a tech podcast together. Although we've been on many episodes of The Incomparable and other things together, it's uh, your favorite from ATP. It's John Syracuse. Hi, John. I'm pretty sure we did a five by five did special we? about an Apple event or something. Oh, that could and we be. were both there. That could be. That's possible. I just we, think it's we funny. Should, we should just talk about Miyazaki just in case though. Oh yeah, we could do that. <laughs> we do that. That just makes there's some people who are very angry when Mike talk and I talked about uh, movies that he hasn't seen that I made him watch. <laughs> and they're like, I didn't sign up for this. And it's like, well, we put it at the end. You could like tune just stop it if Did you put it after the song? Oh wait. Yeah. <laughs> We do have a song. We have a little. We have a little song. We could have done that. We haven't done. We don't have a post show kind of thing like you guys do. Um, so do you? I, I should ask Marco this and not you. But is there a philosophy behind the ATP where when the theme song goes? Is because on the incomparable, I, I always consider like anything I put after the the music is like literally uh, not essential. Like like this is all optional material after this point. Yeah, we got an interesting email. I guess we'll probably talk about it in the next ATP. But someone emailed and said they, they thought their podcast client wasn't working. Like, it works with every show, but with ATP, for some reason, it's like it's jumping around. Or he thought he had finished an oh. episode, but it sounded like it was starting again. So, A, maybe this person has some weird problem with the Apple Podcast app. Or, B, they're confused by the fact that when they think they've finished an episode and they've heard the song, <laughs> that they go back to the you episode. Guys and keep there's talking. Still more, there's still more to play. Yeah. Yep. So, there is a philosophy. It's basically, it's a tech podcast. We talk about tech stuff. Uh, we do all the sponsors and all the tech stuff that we want to cover before the song. Then the song comes, and afterward is kind of talking about the show that we just did, but also any sort of non-tech stuff. So if we just want to talk about cars, it's going to be in that part. If we right. want to talk about our feelings being heard on Twitter, it's going yeah. to be in that uh-huh. part. Sometimes it's carryover tech stuff because we're talking about the tech stuff we just did in the in the main part of the program. And so it's like, well, you just you just continue talking about tech. Why was that even there? Or if we didn't get to a tech topic, it'll be back there. But it's all kind of like more casual, retrospective, and it's like a grab bag. So there is a philosophy, but it's super loose. Yeah, I get it. And I, I get why people would be confused. But, you know, what you don't want to do is create what, uh, you know, what something that Dan Benjamin started and that I do and that we occasionally do on, on Relay as well, which is the, the After Dark bonus track B-side kind of thing. Because that's like, then you're really saying it's like, this is for super fans only. And what I like about ATP and how you guys handle it is, it's like, look, there's the show. And then there's some other stuff we're also going to talk about that you get to listen to. But it's not in the show it's not the sponsors it can be off topic um that's why i find it funny when people complain to you guys about what you do in the post show because it's like literally this is bonus people (laughs) we could have just ended the show when the music stopped i think some people don't know that part of the show exists because they just hit stop after the song and i always wonder about those people but there is extra extra stuff for the live listeners we have all sorts of bs that would probably go in you know the bonus track type of thing in uh in, in comparable parlance but that we just don't even release. Yeah. So that, that does still exist, but it's only for the live listeners, and there's very few of them. Right. That's true. 
I mean, relatively speaking, very few. And they have their own bootlegs and things like that, too. It's pretty serious. Pretty serious stuff. Uh, on this show, we usually do some follow-up. I have one item of follow-up. Would you like to hear it? Go for it. <laughs> well, this is hashtag Mike was wrong. Uh, because in previous episodes, Mike has been talking about being right. And he's like a uh, a pusher. But he, he, what he's pushing is um, iPhone 6 Pluses. And uh, I just wanted to mention that I wrote a, a piece on six colors. It'll be in the show notes, which I should say you can find at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 30 or in the podcast client you're listening to right now um, called Two Weeks with the iPhone 6 Plus, where I uh, wrote about the fact that I've been using it for the last two weeks. When I was in Europe, I used it because I had an unlocked 6 Plus that I had access to. And in the end, I decided that the only thing I really liked about it was the fact that the battery was battery life was better. Um, and otherwise, uh, I found I, when I came back and I switched and, and literally, John, I'm standing in the line at customs <laughs> at the airport and I, I and I've got the I've got my iPhone six turned on and I'm using it. And um, and I found myself like grasping it with two hands, like almost like I'm like uh, huddling near a fire to stay warm or something like that. And I realized it's I, over two weeks I'd built up this gesture that was me kind of clutching the phone in order to not drop it because it was so huge that I needed like the extra hand in the other corner. Uh, so what I'm saying is um, I, I learned something about myself, which is I do a lot of uh, one-handed uh, phone checking and stuff with my thumb and it totally doesn't work on the 6 Plus because I can't even reach the bottom right corner with my thumb on the 6 Plus. And then, and then even Mike said that he does a lot of kind of like gymnastics to get the phone in the right position to press certain things in certain places on the phone. It's like, it's too much. It's too much. So uh, I, I appreciated my time with the 6 Plus. It was great having an unlocked phone in Europe because there is some great you can buy. I bought for 20 pounds. I bought a SIM card that was unlimited data for 30 days and I was only there for 14 in the UK and, and Ireland where I went. And that was all great, but uh, I have to say that I, I for, for myself, I, I think I made the right decision in getting the 6 Plus and not the not or getting the 6 and not the 6 Plus. I read your thing already because I had a sneak Look preview of well, as, soon, as soon as it was posted, it appeared in what it appeared on Twitter and my Slack feed. Yes, yeah, so I already read it. Uh, and I've heard Marco on ATP talked about his experiences with the 6 Plus uh, also in Ireland. And I've never had the opportunity to try one. I've held one in the store, but I've never lived with one for any period of time. I would imagine that what would happen is, like, even with my 6, which is bigger than my series of iPod touches that preceded it, right. I tend to use it like a little iPad sometimes, mostly because my actual iPad is an iPad 3 and it's really slow. So if I'm doing anything like playing a game where the frame rate isn't quite so good on my iPad 3 or... Uh, doing a web page that's JavaScript heavy or something. Sometimes I use it like a little iPad. You know, I'm laying down on my bed and I'll put it on my chest like a little iPad and hold it with two hands. It is a very small iPad. I would imagine yes. a six, six plus would be a little bit closer to being like an iPad and maybe make me use my iPad even less. But if I had an iPad Air 2, I don't know if it would contend. And like like you said, I don't, you know, the, the biggest issue for me is how big the darn thing is just portability wise wrapping my hands around it, sticking it in my pockets as Marco was finding, the difficulty of just sitting uncomfortable. If it doesn't fit in your pockets in the normal way and you have to change how you sit or like you, uh, like he said, I think putting it on the table. Yeah, I found myself it putting pocket. it on the table too, which is weird because I don't do that. And I found myself putting it on the table because it's like, wow, well, I could, I could get, put the, you know, this back in my pocket, but that's, that's nah, I'll just leave yeah. it out. You have to stand <laughs> up to get it into your yeah. pocket and putting it on your yeah. table is dangerous because it's more susceptible to spills. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you mentioned that Mike had dropped his a bunch of times, although I don't know if he also dropped his five yeah, and five. I, I thought whatever. that was a weird thing where he, where 
he actually admitted. I mean, he to, to Mike's credit, he he admitted all the flaws and things that he had learned to live with with the six plus, and dropping it is definitely one of them. I I said to him that I was I was using um, the Maps app to get to my uh, friend's house in London where I was staying. I got off the tube. I've got the data plan because I bought the card in a vending machine at the baggage claim, and and. And it was five pounds. I knew what the cost, the regular cost was. It was five pounds more. And I was like, well, this way I'll have data and I can be sure of the right way to go to get to my friend's house. So I'm out there and I'm looking at the maps app and I realize that I can't reach my thumb across it. And I'm trying to like move it into a different position. And, and, and uh, I, I'm holding my suitcase with one hand. So I'm trying to do this one handed and I realized I just couldn't do it. I had to stop and, and put the suitcase down and, and do all of that. And I told this story to Mike and he said, oh, yeah. Um, you know, you've got you'll get more confident in holding it in those weird positions where it feels like it's about to drop, but it also sometimes you, you drop it. <laughs> <laughs> That's not like a good thing at all. You'll get you'll get more confident and then you'll drop it more. That uh, yeah yeah yeah. I I didn't think it, it was a very strange statement for him to make. Like, oh, well, you drop it, but you got it in a case and it's fine. Yeah, my my six <laughs> okay. has taken a tumble many times, but not out of my hand. It's always like I'll put it on my nightstand, and then somehow it will get knocked off wow. my nightstand by myself or a pillow or a child, or it'll be. It's always being knocked off of things into cracks between furniture. I hmm. guess I'm always sort of balancing it precariously on the edges of the, the side of sofas and ends of tables. Uh, none of them have done any damage other than put a tiny little nick in my leather case in the corner and it's really annoying me but uh i'm oh. resisting buying a new whatever the heck it is 80 leather case just because it has a nick in the corner i i should say there's also a funny thing that doug beale in the chat room just mentioned which is uh georgia dow uh from imore pointed out that she has a, a case that she stuck this little like um elastic hand strap on the back and everybody who's an iPhone 6 Plus user was like checking it out. Well, you know, you can like pass your 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 fingers through it and hold it like. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking having it like a, a any kind of handle or a knob or a strap or a loop or a, you know a thing to put one or two fingers through. Yeah. That, those are all good things. Yeah, and uh, and you know, I I I thought it was funny that everybody was uh, cheering that hand strap thing because it was a combination of of being a very clever hack to hold the phone better and to be complete failure because you have to stick a thing on the back of your yeah. case. If you, if you got an even bigger strap, perhaps it could fit all the way around your wrist mm. and then you'd have like a little screen on your wrist. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking out loud That's here. That's a crazy idea. Well, at that point, I think you just get an iPad and you get that and you go full <laughs> on with the with that uh, Velcro ball thing that did, Mike and I were talking about. Did you read that? About. I think it was in the Wired article about the, you know, one of the uh, things where Apple was opening uh, up to the press and they mentioned how one of the early... Uh, Apple Watch prototype things was literally taking an iPhone and putting a Velcro strap on it yeah. and strapping it to your wrist. Yeah, with a with a like an emulator of right. the watch on it. A little picture of a watch on your iPhone. Yeah, pretend that. This. Well, I wonder that, if they like gonna, skin tone around it. Like it's going to be the Apple Watch Six Plus. Just watch. Mike will be telling everybody he's got here. They've got to get that. They're like right. gauntlets. Really, you just put them on these mm-hmm. huge glass things on the the top of your forearm. Then you don't. Then you don't drop it because yep. it's tied to your body. And you can defend against uh, attacks with swords by just putting up your forearm. Mm-hmm. That's true. Right. That, that's true. It's like you're, you're becoming Iron Man at that point, really. Yep. Uh, I should mention Stephen Hackett also wrote a thing, and Marco uh, Arment is in in the process, I believe, of writing something too about the six plus thing. So I think it's great that you know not everybody has the chance to <laughs> test drive a different phone model for a couple of weeks, and so I think that's one of the reasons we write this stuff is to say, well, look, you know, here here's what we noticed when we did this. Um, you know, I, I think you know 
since not everybody can do that, that if it informs people a little bit about what their choices are. And they're definitely going to be able to hear both sides of the argument because uh, it didn't work for me, but I know it works for Mike and, and Stephen Hackett. And I, I'm yet to hear exactly. I think Marco is sort of, uh, he sees a little bit more of the pros and cons of both of them. So I'm well, looking forward did, to his. Did you hear that ATP episode where you talked about the uh, the Ool trip and everything? I have heard the, I, I've heard like half of it. Yeah, because he talks about the six plus yeah. uh, extensively in there. This is going to be sometimes there is a blog post that he comes on ATP and talk about, and sometimes you talk about it in something ATP and right. it becomes a blog post. And this I, like, is one of I like that. I like it when the you've talked about that before. It's like the podcast that's sort of your your thought process. It's like before there's a draft, there's you talking about it on the podcast, and yep. I do that a lot. Yeah, I, I actually listened to the first like half hour of ATP, and then I skipped to the Twitter stuff in the in the in the in the post show because I knew we were going to be talking, and I had that as one of my things I might want to talk about. So I. Had have to skip back and again I, maybe i'm that guy who wrote to you so i don't understand atp it skips all over like it's, it was the, he didn't he thought it was something wrong with his podcast yeah. app like the, the i don't know he may be right maybe he does have a problem with his podcast app. i, I bet he doesn't do want to do tech support over email i think you it. guys have just confused him i hope he's you he should use overcast that's what mark should say yeah i can solve that for you yeah um so anyway that's the follow-up uh, we'll leave the rest for when mike comes back um let me take a break uh, for our first sponsor, you know how this works, right? You know, you do this every week with Marco. I'm and, there when it happens. And if he, that's what you mean. And he has to read the he has to read the sponsor. Well, I'm going to do that now. So good luck. This, thank you, thank you. Here I go. This episode of Upgrade brought to you by One Password from Agile Bits. Uh, One Password, I, I use it. I love it. It's an essential piece of software uh, that lets you store your passwords. The, I mean, the way it works is instead of having, I used to have the same password on every single site. <laughs> the problem is if a site gets hacked and they figure out the passwords that were on that site, they now have your password on every site in the world. So now I use One Password. It's on my Mac. It's on my iOS device. If you use Windows or Android, you can find it there too. They've actually even got a super cool thing where there's an HTML file hiding within there. Uh, their password file that you can open in a web browser and put in your password and look up your passwords that way. It automatically generates passwords for me. So I have a different strong password on every single site. They're all stored in the one password database. And all I have to do is remember a single password, one password, if you will, and everything unlocks and, uh, and I can get online super easy with just that one password that only I and perhaps my loved ones know. It saves a lot of time. Uh, the browser plugin lets you get access to the login screen uh, right, right, right inside your browser. You don't have to go launch another app and look it up painfully. Um, they just enabled uh, TOTP, which uh, is uh, in iOS and Windows with Mac and Android coming soon. This is time-based, one-time passwords, another layer of two-step security. Uh, you know, they're always making changes. There are new, I'm on the beta stream for 1Password. There are new builds all the time. They are working endlessly to improve 1Password, which I think is uh, also really cool. Um, So I I definitely recommend it. If you're not yet a 1Password user, uh, you should think about changing that. So go to agilebits.com, A-G-I-L-E-B-I-T-S.com slash 1Password, O-N-E-P-A-S-S-W-O-R-D to find out more. And uh, you can also find 1Password, of course, on your app store of choice. So thank you so much to Agile Bits and 1Password for keeping all of my passwords and logins secure and for supporting Upgrade. Put passwords in their place with 1Password. Mike's going to have some comments about that, I'm sure. Like, Jason, the ad read you did there, I would have done it much better than that. And he's probably right. But uh, I do love 1Password, so that made that a lot easier to read. 
So uh, have you have you been reading the Steve Jobs, the new Steve Jobs book, the Becoming Steve Jobs? I just started it. I'm about ten percent through. Ten percent. Well, you know, so that's a couple chapters, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. All, all I know is Kindle percentages now. I have yeah, no I know. Re- recollection of pages. I know. Well, you can see the chapters as you go through the chapters. I just finished it. I I finished it on the flight back from from Ireland, um, and uh, I think it's pretty good, actually. Um, and I say that as a preface because I have lots of criticisms of it, and I, I'm looking forward to your book report when you're when you're done with it. Um, you know, I. I I don't know if you formed any initial thoughts about it going in, or or, or if you if you are uh, are you expecting much, or have you been have you accepted the hype that this is going to be the cure to the uh, Isaacson book? Well, I, I I'm only ten percent through, but yeah. I do have an opinion immediately of like the book, and it, and now it has to like if it changes as the book goes on, I will change my opinion. But already, I feel like I have this book's number, uh, and. <laughs> It's not, I like it better than the Isaacson book so far, but there's, you know, having just read 10% of it, what I'm reading now is the early parts about Apple, his right. childhood, uh, starting the company with Waz, uh, doing the Mac project, uh, getting Scully. Like, you know how many times I've read that story? I know. I've read about a million magazine articles on it. I've read tons of books about it. I've just, from every conceivable angle, I've watched documentaries about it, just like, I've seen that story a lot, right? So the odds of there being something new in there are slim. The, the Isaacson book, one of the few things it had going for it is that it had a lot of, you know, it was it was the authorized one, and it had a lot of uh, inside access to people who previously didn't have access to, but not much is new in there. So all I've got to go on so far in the book is sort of like tone and purpose, and the tone and purpose bother me a little bit because the book is kind of being presented as a reaction to other books or popular narratives, mm-hmm. which I guess is one way you can go with it. It's not really what I'm looking for out of like, what I was looking for out of the, the Isaacson son is like uh, Isaacson book is a sort of a definitive biography where you just get all the facts and lay them out documentary style. If you do have an agenda, I want you to hide it better, <laughs> like yeah. really well, you know, uh, again, one of, uh, my favorite biography ever is uh, The Power Broker, which definitely has an agenda, but it's just so massively supported by just fact after fact, interview after interview. Like, it's, you know, it's not just asserted. And in this book, a lot of it is like, here's what happened, which, of course, I know all this stuff already. Uh, and then a line from the authors saying, people always say <laughs> this, but really, Jobs is like that. Just asserted. And then more more events took place. And it's like, well, th- wait a second. Those events don't support that at all. Like, you, they could, you know, that is a plausible interpretation of events. But you can't just say it. people always say the Steve Jobs is really mean. But actually, he's kind of like it. It doesn't. It doesn't fit. And it's, it, so it reads like that's why people are on it as like a defense of Apple. That it, that it is, uh, you know, some people say mean things about Steve Jobs, but actually he wasn't that bad. And then more events. And it's like, it just, it's not apologetic so much as like a book with an agenda, not particularly well supported by the facts. Because the facts are the same as the facts and everything else, right? right? Especially That's... in this early part of the story is just, it's a different interpretation, not really delved into, just used as like a, 
it's like a premise. They'll just lay that out in a one sentence thing, or at the end, the one sentence thing that that says, even though these are the same events that everyone else has recorded, they're really not that bad, and it shows that he's not really that bad a guy. Well, wait a second, you just came to a different conclusion with the same facts, but then you didn't explain how you came to your conclusion. So, so I think um, I think one of the problems here, and and again, you've only read the beginning of it so far, is that this is a book that's got its strong areas, and then it's got the obligatory parts. So, like, you can't tell the Steve Jobs story, right? Except, well, you can, but it's harder to, to make that case if you don't tell that early part. But, uh, but these, uh, these guys didn't know Steve Jobs then. So you, you, they, they step through it. And I think what they do is they throw in some things that they feel like they're going to prove later. Um, yeah, well, we'll see. But like so, so far, like they, they go through the facts and then they, they boldly assert that, uh, that what they have just retold demonstrate something about steve jobs that it does not demonstrate at all like and they and they frame it in a way of like when other people have told the same story they have concluded this but really steve jobs is like x what why how how you just told the exact same story as everyone else what is leading you to believe that he's really like that and if they explain it later in the book then obviously you know well my opinion might change but they're not they don't allude to future events they just sort of say you know, they'll go back and tell an old story and they'll say, well, you know, what about the time when he was crying in the parking lot? That shows something. Huh? No, that perfectly fits with all the narrative. Like, it's like they are reframing the exact same things in a more sympathetic light merely by saying that merely by saying that we, the authors, are more sympathetic to to this scenario. Like, we are not going to in the same way that something that's going to be sensational would demonize him for the same events. They'll say, and this shows that he's an egomaniac and a jerk and. Uh, every misery in his life he deserves, right? Uh, that's that's going in one extreme. This is going the other extreme and saying, despite all these terrible things that he's done, he was a human person with feelings too, and we shouldn't be so mean to him. Uh, and he really wasn't as bad as everyone says because he really loved his kids or whatever. Let's like, I don't know. I'm not impressed so far, but so far it hasn't set its foot wrong in the ways that the Isaacson book has, particularly because this book didn't have the kind of access the Isaacson book has. So automatically I'm inclined to say well you just you're writing another steve jobs book so far that's fine like the second coming of steve jobs is another steve jobs book like that's fine uh i don't fault them for saying you had this one chance to write the definitive biography of steve jobs and you blew it because they didn't and they don't so if it just ends up being another steve jobs book that's fine too now, their assets are brent schlender's relationship with jobs which begins um later right so he doesn't he can't bring those assets to bear here and then their other assets are that they got people from apple uh to talk who haven't really talked about personal yeah. stuff about steve and that's all at the very end so they they they're really limited in what they want to do they want to tell this whole story but they've got these very narrow kind of angles into it based on one reporter's um uh, kind of weird relationship with Steve Jobs and through their Apple access at the end. And so there are lots of kind of weird holes. And I, I you know, I think, I think as it goes, it tells, you know, they, they do have this take and, and when there's a little bit more to back it up, I feel like they're at least making a, a an argument that, um, I, I mean, the thesis of the book is very clearly like a lot of the people who think that Steve Jobs was a monster are thinking about back when he was in his early days when he was truly monstrous, but that later he was not quite so monstrous and you should, you know, and, and he mellowed out a lot and was not the same guy and learned a lot. And so there's a story arc to his, his professional life as well as his personal life that he, he learned and he grew and he changed and he did some terrible things when he was, 
uh, when he was in his 20s, but he wasn't that same guy the last 10 years of his life. And there are, there's some evidence to, there. They seem to even assert that when he was young, at his very youngest, like the crying in the parking lot story, they're saying... Even the people who say he was a monster <laughs> when he's young, see, he actually went after the parking lot and cried. And that it totally fits with the narrative of people calling him a monster. It is not an aberration. Yeah. It is you, not you, a counterexample. Keep, keep That's part of the it. whole thing. Keep reading it because I think that it – I think that uh, – they are a little more even-handed with that in in presenting that he was totally messed up. And actually, they have a really interesting thesis, which is that he never had a mentor. He was basically – he was a spoiled yeah, child. He was I always yeah. – right? He was always uh, allowed to do anything. And then the people he surrounded himself first – what was it? Mike Scott and then John Scully. They're like – his argument is these guys were terrible mentors. They were not capable of, of mentoring Steve in any way. And and the, and then it extends to sort of saying that the, the person – who really um, gave that connection to him was Ed Catmull and and also John Lasseter to a certain extent. And they were people where there was actually a better relationship and fit and they helped him improve and become a better manager. Uh, you know, again, I, I think they do an okay job of making that case. I don't know whether I entirely buy it, but I think it's an interesting take on, on jobs. But again, they can't tell that part until they get to that part of the story. And so for me, I mean, that's I think that's why there's that, that uh, first... Little the little prologue where it's like, hey, this is when I knew Steve Jobs because then they can't do that for a long time, so they have a little flash forward. Yeah, there's a little bit of the Gonzo journalism thing where the story is a little bit about the author. Yeah, the, it's in first person. There are the, two the authors, weird, but yeah, one the of weird, them is the, first yeah, the weird collective singular first person uh, dual author. <laughs> but it's like. Let me tell you about my meeting with Jobs and what it was like in our relationship. And it's yeah. like, well, I don't really care about one half of that relationship, right? I don't right. really care, except maybe to the extent that is it illum- it's illuminating about his character. But I don't know. Like, it, so far, not not a lot of uh, insights in the book. And and even the part that you're talking about, like with the mentor, like, oh, he needed to have a mentor and he didn't have one or whatever. As an explanation, like, of what happened, that's fine. But because the book is framed as a a comeback against the popular narrative, that explanation reads more like an excuse. Like, see, he wasn't a bad guy. He just didn't have a good mentor. Like, that's... And, and it's because the book is framed, uh, like, uh, as a sort of as a sort of defense or a balancing off of everything else that that it, it, it comes off more apologetic. Like, and it, yeah. because that's not, you know, like, boo-hoo, he didn't have a good mentor. Like, that doesn't... His behavior is what his behavior is, and there's nothing you know. You can explain the circumstances surrounding it, but you can't you can't use that to fight back against what you consider unflatter, unflattering narratives. Like because everyone agrees on the facts, it's just the interpretations, and it's not as if you know you didn't have this extra piece of information. Let me tell you this piece, and that will change things. And every new piece of information that gets added just fits into the exact same puzzle piece that ever the same picture that, that has been drawn by every book. It's just piling it's on rem- some more information. It's, in it's remarkably consistent, and it's all just how you interpret it. How do you balance the good against the bad? Right. He, because he was a complicated person. He wasn't all good, and he wasn't all bad. He did good things. He did terrible things. How do you balance it out? And, yeah, I don't know. I'll, I'll finish the book. I'll, I, I, we'll talk about it in ATP. But, you know, I can. I, I am the type of person who feels like he can give a book report on a book after reading the first chapter, which is obviously what <laughs> you should you. not do. <laughs> well, so I also think it's, it's worth mentioning um, – 
I, I do wonder sometimes if Apple endorsing this book does this book any favors because oh no that's the worst right yeah, right because like, it's setting it up as being an apologetic uh, you know hagiography of isn't this which I don't think it is but again they got the Apple access and they got people in fact even in the book some I think Eddie Q condemns the Isaacson book in this book which is kind of and, funny <laughs> and they should and they should that's fine like I condemn that book too but it's it's kind of like what I said about a regulatory agency in ADP a while back if you are a regulatory regulatory agency and the companies you regulate are applauding something you do, chances are you're not doing your job well. So I'm not saying that a biography is supposed to be a regulatory agency, but if you're writing a biography about the famous uh, leader of the world's biggest technology company, the world's biggest company, period, and that company heartily endorses your book, you should be thinking to yourself, wait a second, what did I miss? Like, because there's, you know, there should be something in there that, like, they shouldn't be wholeheartedly endorsing your book. They should be endorsing maybe some parts of it because other books have been worse. Like they can condemn the, the Isaacson book, but once they're sort of like in the press endorsing your biography, it really undercuts like your credibility, whether it's fair or not. Like it could be a perfectly balanced book. It just seems like, yeah, that I, if yeah. I was the author of the book, I'd be like, maybe just, you know, not so much on the, how much you love the book. Cause it makes me seem like a shell. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, so the other thing that's bothering me and I've got a little list here, which I'll go through really quickly is, uh, and you know, this is any anything that you see that's reported that's something you know a lot about. You you see, uh, you see the mistakes, and you think, oh, that's really oversimplified, or they got that wrong a little bit. I I don't think these mistakes necessarily make the book, um, the book's overarching value less or more, and the point they're trying to make stronger or weaker. Other than to say that it gives me pause that uh, that there are so many little problems i have with it that i feel like were they afraid somebody was going to leak it if they had hired a fact checker or something because there are a lot not only yeah i mean they capitalize Macworld with a capital w which really bugs me and they say that saint quentin prison is in san rafael and it's really not and they say that there was a black ibook and it was a black macbook you know mac nerd stuff um but uh they say uh th- at one point they assert that the clone strategy failed because clones were cheap and tarnished apple's mystique as a maker of premium hardware which i think is an interesting argument cuz my recollection of the clone era is that um apple's hardware wasn't very good and so when you let other people make clones <laughs> um then the people had no reason to buy apple hardware um, there were cheap was, clones. That, there were nice clones sentence, too. That sentence was probably off by itself in the book, though. You know, is this quote right from the book? The strategy failed to yeah. the availability of cheap clones tarnished Apple's mystique as a maker of premium hardware. Period. I bet the next yeah. sentence moves on to the next topic. Like they just flat out say, "Oh yeah, no, it's a statement you know, of fact." That strategy I dispute. failed, <laughs> and and the availability of cheap clones tarnished Apple's mystique. Yep. Moving on. Moving like, on. is that it? Like, that that's the story of the clones? If you had if you had to summarize the story of the clones, that's not how I would summarize no, no, it in I a think, single sentence, right? But I, but I think it feeds, their, it feeds the narrative they want to tell um, in a very simple way, but I think it's not true. Um, and and that, that it's also a snowball. As these mistakes and things that I dispute, some of them are factual errors and some of them are assertions that I think are wrong. But, you know, the more of them I see, the more, like, momentum I get of, like, okay, that's not right and that's not right. And that happened to me when I read this. They talk about how the BOS uh, is designed to, to – it says to also be able to use the existing Macintosh OS and then thus operate like a Mac clone. BOS is a separate operating system. Yeah. It could run on Mac hardware. It did not use yeah, the Mac yeah. OS. Right. So that's that's where you have to sort of decode from like non-tech person speaking. Like I think what they're getting at is that both ran on PowerPC 
I'm pretty sure that's what they're getting yeah. at, but it is so mangled that it's it's just, it's totally it, ends, it comes right. out backward. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, and you can kind of decipher it. Like the, the the great one in the Isaacson book is the idea that they bought next and then never used the next operating system. Like as, as yeah. such a pivotal, not just like a techie detail. Like oh, who cares about the tech? That's these just guys, such a pivotal, these a guys pivotal get this part right. of the yeah, the, these guys, a pivotal part of the entire acquisition of next. It's like if you got that wrong, that's not a little thing. That is the most important acquisition Apple has ever done to find the entire future of all their products, including the phone, including yeah. the watch, including the iPad. And you're like, they never use that. These guys did get that part right. They, they, because it fits also, it fits their thesis to say this was the key uh, acquisition, not just for Steve Jobs, but because that technology was the bedrock of yeah, all of the future Apple products. Right. Like, yes, and that's it, right. It's not asking to, for them to be tech geniuses to no. figure that like that. No. If you know any, like it's the basics, right? And so the BOS thing, you can kind of tell that someone somewhere, like the right idea was in there and it just came out wrong in the thing. <laughs> and, and assertions about the clones, they don't understand. They weren't there. They weren't in the thing, whatever, like. Yeah, yeah. They said they said John Rubenstein's company, uh, Powerhouse Systems, did Mac clones, which I think <laughs> right, is right. I think they're thinking power computing. I don't think Powerhouse Systems ever made a Mac clone. I think they were PCs that ran Next Step, but um, that that's in there. Um, the, oh, they they uh, talk about fitting your narrative. Um, they suggest that. Uh, Steve Jobs was waiting in the wings for that appearance at Macworld Expo and that Gil Emilio gave a long droning speech um, and and everybody was just impatiently waiting to get to Jobs and Jobs had to wait, which is, I don't know if that's true or not. The story I always heard is that Jobs made them wait as a power move. He got there late yep. and Emilio had to stretch and look bad and really be boring because he couldn't speak extemporaneously to save his life. Um, but they don't tell it that way. They tell it this opposite way that it's like, you know, come on, get out of the way, old man. Steve Jobs coming through and that's that's not my understanding is my understanding was Steve Jobs was kind of being a jerk and yeah. didn't show up this is a great example like so that I've read that 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 version of, of events as well and then here is this other version I don't know which one of those is true find the people who were there and ask them for crying out <laughs> yeah. loud like you know what I mean just I, yeah because those know. are completely opposite stories of right. the same and like, event. If only there was some way we could determine which one of those stories is more likely to be true, rather than reading, because I've read I've read many variations on what happened in that particular keynote, and usually there is one source who says, yeah, uh, he totally made Emilio wait, and the other one's like, yeah, uh, Emilio just went on to... Uh, and this surely there was more than two people there. Surely you can <laughs> get one more than one. And then zero sources here. This is just like, again, I, ne I never want to get the impression when I'm reading one of these books that the person writing the book simply read one of the other seven books I've read on this topic and like summarize it like a book report. Like there's no sourcing, there's no footnotes, there's no person they talk to. They just say this is what happened. Yep. And it's like, yeah, I read that in a magazine article once too. Well, I've got one better for you. This is another statement of fact, which which is they essentially say the iPhone proved to be original iPhone proved to be a tougher sell than many would have imagined. People had expected something that would support video games and reference books and fancy calculators and word processors and financial spreadsheets right out of the box. The phone they got <laughs> couldn't yet do that. Now, this is the narrative of the iPhone wasn't any good until the App Store because the App Store was really great. And that was a lesson Steve had to learn that he had to turn it around and bring the App Store. That's the story they want to tell. But I have no recollection at all of people being cool on the iPhone when it came out because it didn't run third-party apps. We wanted it to run third-party apps, but my memory of that first nine months of the iPhone or whatever it was, we were pretty happy with the iPhone. Yeah, the best part is, like, so video games, maybe uh, reference books, borderline fancy calculators, maybe, but word processors? Are you kidding me? People played games on their phone. They played Snake, right? You yeah. played the little, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> No one expected a word processor on your phone before the iPhone. 
And the iPhone was released, they're like, well, it's great, but it's not a word processor. Were people doing word processing on their Motorola Razors? No, that's crazy talk. Like, it, it reveals their, their it's, they now believe, that, like, they've rewound history and said, yeah. I always knew that phones would always be like this. And, you know, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. People were going crazy for the iPhone, the fact that it could do any of the things it did. Uh, and I think only the tech nerds were like, boy, it would be great to write applications to the song. But yep. the world at large didn't even think of it. No. I, mean, I remember in the, in the Mac world, the, uh, the Mac world, uh, the, the keynote when it was uh, when it was announced, yeah. uh, Cable Sasser and John Gruber did a podcast. And at one point, Cable said, can we write apps for this phone? Because that would be awesome. The only people who were thinking yeah. about writing apps for this were Mac software developers and stuff like that. The, the general plus USA Today wasn't like, well, this phone is great, but if you can't word process on it, forget it. <laughs> if it only had apps like no other phone, then uh, well, if phones did have apps, you yeah, could download it again. Right. You could download the Snake you, Game you or whatever. But, but but fa- financial spreadsheets and word <laughs> processors, come on. <laughs> no, they're they're trying to fit it to a narrative. I mean, th- those and honestly, those things bothered me more as I read this book. The idea that they are really kind of rewriting parts of history to fit their to fit their thesis and to fit their narrative than than the factual stuff. Like like I said later in the book, they say that the 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 iPhone three G had a faster processor, and that's not true. They say the iPad two had a flash. The iPads never had a flash. Um, you know, yeah, you think that's like? Do they mean like flash memory? Then you try again. You're trying to decode it. Like they can't possibly mean like a light that blinks because they. But they, that's <laughs> that's what that's what they do. They also suggest that the reason that the iOS didn't support flash is because Adobe angered Steve earlier by support by either not supporting Next or by uh, building some software for like for Windows or something like like. I don't think that was well, really the motivator. That might be true, but if it is, get a quote from somebody who nice says, yeah, we were in a that. meeting with Steve and he said, we're not going to put had Flash it on iOS. Like, you, know, you have to source it. You can't just say Steve Jobs was at it. Because Steve Jobs has been mad at Adobe at many times, uh, reportedly, over many things. But is that why he decided to do this feature of this product? You have to, ha- you have to source that. You yeah. can't just say it. And the last one, which just made me laugh that I put it in the notes here, is that it is one of the most baldly, factually incorrect things. And I just wonder, again, did anybody – it would have been so easy for them to hire a Mac nerd, essentially, to just fact-check this and clear this stuff out. in Or look stuff up in Wikipedia. Well, you know? Exactly, because <laughs> they, they say, on October 17th, several hundred people attended a memorial service at the Memorial Church on Stanford University's campus. The iPhone 4S had been introduced two days earlier in the company's first public event after Steve's death. The event took place the day – now, this is me talking – the event took place the day before steve jobs died it did not take place after steve's death it was not the first event after steve's death they introduced it with an empty chair in the front row for steve and he died the next day that was it's just it's so basic and that is not a far off historical event that's a couple years ago and they just got it wrong and and you know i don't know it it, it's it it doesn't speak well to the rest of the book I, i again i think that this book is fine but making all these mistakes i just i'm a little baffled by it and i wonder whether they were just terrified that it was all gonna leak and they didn't want to share it with anyone but it's like simple stuff that doesn't really matter to your overall thesis in a lot of cases but uh you could have done a little extra work and made and made the, these mistakes all go away and uh, have people query you on like what's your reasoning for saying that the clones were like this or what's what's your source about Gil Emilio spending a lot of time on stage because he loved the spotlight <laughs> which is not true yeah uh, or, or saying like do you have different sources than this than the did you just did you just read this in another book or magazine article or did you talk to somebody about this because like you said his relationship started around the next year so everything before the next year he has to be getting from somewhere and is he just getting it from other books and magazines articles yeah. if it's that's fine but if he's going to have different conclusions or certain different facts about it like i keep thinking maybe 
just take the part that is relevant to you and release it as a really long magazine article or a couple of magazine articles? Why do you need to make a book out of it and pad it out with the stuff that you weren't around for by just summarizing other people's work? And to some degree, like if you go back and read all these books, you know, you read Infinite Loop and the Second Coming of Steve Jobs and Revolution in the Valley and, you know, what is the other one? East of Eden. And just like there's a million of these books around that time, Accidental Empires. Right. They all talk about the same series of events from different angles and they're contradictory. Like some like they're dancing around the truth. Uh, and I tend to value more the ones that have direct quotes from people who were there, not because their their version of events is, is necessarily correct, but because at least I'm getting one actual perspective. So if I I feel like if I can get all of the firsthand perspectives of an event, no one of those accounts of the event will be completely accurate. But if I know all of them, I can mm-hmm. kind of get a picture of what they're circling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's the only way to know what really happened. No one person is going to tell you. But if you take together everybody's event and keep in mind what their motivations were, uh, how the, how that event affected their lives and how, you know, like... That's the only way to know the truth of history. You can't, and that's why you maybe you need a thousand pages to do a biography of Robert Moses. You have to just get every possible angle and build the truth by sort of coloring in the area that's not the truth and coloring in all the people's biases and all, all the people's reports. And what's left is the truth in the middle. Yeah, I feel like I said this after the Isaacson book, and, and I feel like I have to say it again after this book, which is it is uh, going to be source material for hopefully another. Um, Steve Jobs book that may not be a popular book. It might even be scholarly. I don't know. But I feel like there's like a true story of Steve Jobs book yet to be written. It's definitive. And it's going to have to end up taking the material from this these books that was actually reported. So in this case, it's going to be the firsthand accounts from the Apple people and the firsthand accounts from the first person one of the two writers. Uh, and use that as raw material. Use the raw material from Isaacson where he's reporting what people are saying. And, and from these other books and other, you know, contemporary reports and put it together into something that is um that 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 puts it in a hole because for now what we end up with is these books where we can pick and choose some some things that that seem like they're facts or at least they're a particular person's take on it um but i don't feel like i've i there's a book that i can point to and say ah that that's the one that's definitive because they're not definitive they've got little bits that might um, hint at the truth, but uh, then there are a lot of other little bits where I I feel like this is a fun story, but I've I've literally read this story a dozen times before. Yeah, they need to get to these people before they die too. Yeah, so that's one angle, and the second angle is after these people die, you'll probably be able to maybe get access to like all their emails and correspondence. Like that's where you know, in the case of uh, like the the Robert Moses book, a lot of the times you're going through like public records, public speeches, letters written to people. Like, that are only revealed after everyone involved is dead because mm-hmm. you're not going to see someone's personal letters until, like, the family releases them or whatever. The same things with personal emails. So you need to get the people, interviews with the people while they're alive. And then after everybody dies, you need to get all the correspondence. And then you can build a true history around uh, this type of thing. Yeah, like a, a Stanford University oral history project that goes and interviews, and for all we know, they did this, but goes and interviews all the people who were involved in Apple in the first decade of the 21st century and says, we're going to put this under lock and key until 50 years from now or until after you die. And or what, you know, whatever, whatever circumstances you want. I actually yeah, and did, you got to get their business correspondence, all yeah. the paper before there was email and all, you know, can you imagine how much stuff is in emails, even just in the short amount of time that email existed for Apple's yeah. life? Like that is going to be way more illuminating than interviewing the same three people who are willing to talk for the umpteenth time. Right. I actually did the uh, story in my uh, 
my college newspaper, we did a we did a story about the guy who was one of the founders of the university, and when he died. Uh, his oral history interview was released, and he said many unkind things about lots of people. It's kind of fascinating, um, and that's the kind of thing that you don't ever want to say when you have to deal with the consequence. You wait until everybody's dead, and then at least the historians can make some sense of it all. Um, I don't know. Well, I, I you know I think it's I think I'm happy that I read it. Um, I wish it was better. I I get I, I appreciated their argument which is basically like people who feel like Steve Jobs was always that one guy and didn't grow as a person um, in his time away from Apple and, 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 and came back and then was successful. Um, you know, that their argument is, yeah, he did, he did grow. I, I suppose you could look at his first tenure at Apple and his tenure at next, and then his second tenure at Apple and say, Hey, this guy obviously figured some things out. They try to explain what those things are. I think everybody can judge for themselves whether, whether they're successful or not. But you yeah, know. I think I would might come to a different conclusion of it. Like it's clear that the results were different, but I'm not entirely convinced that the results were different because the guy changed that much. He did change. Like he made different decisions and acted in different ways and surrounded himself by different people. But a lot of it has to do with circumstances yeah, I, th- you know I think what I, mean? I think you know I think their thesis, and I'm not entirely sure I buy this. They really want you to believe that that um, not just failing at next, but but being around Pixar, but not being deep down in it because he couldn't be because he wasn't a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, that that experience gave him that secret sauce that he didn't have before, and I'm not yeah. sure I buy it. But I mean, and Pixar is magical, so that's what they're kind of going for. But I'm not sure I really buy it. Well, see, like, even if you had an interview with Steve Jobs himself and where he said, you know what really changed me was going to Pixar. And, you know, if he just repeated that word for it, even that doesn't mean that's the case. That just means that that's what he believes. Right. So you really have to get uh, all angles of it. And like the stories for both, you know, the Jobs one and two errors of Apple are so similar in so many ways they're just framed differently because now it's like, you know, he, <laughs> well, was, he came, like, he came back as the CEO and picked the whole board himself. Right. right. So he would like, never get if, fired again. If, <laughs> if the original Steve Jobs was in the same position that the, that the second round Steve Jobs was in, maybe he would have been just as successful. Like he, maybe he was just set up for failure because he, because he brought in the adult supervision because he didn't, you know, maybe it's, you know, didn't trust himself to do all this stuff, but he was just, he was, Always going to be, he was, uh, Bozos were in charge of him, right? Yeah. To, to use his language, yep. right? And he was never going to succeed in that thing. And that, that I think is one of the most fascinating things where how many people uh, are, have, you know, this, how many potential Steve Jobses are crushed by the fact that they never get into the position where their assets are allowed to result in good outcomes. They're only ever put in, and it's the same guy in both positions, you know what I mean? And that this one person happened to have, you know, there's no second act in American Life, so whatever, he had a second and third act. And we got to see, it's kind of like running the trial, that you know, that we get to run the trial three different times. I'm going to put the same guy in three different situations, and let's see what, what happens and what's different, right? Now, he's not obviously the same guy, but, like, the entire, the, like, the, the transformation premise that his time in the wilderness changed him so fundamentally that it was that that made it when he was, when he came back, he was able to uh, do things better. Uh, I think there's some of that, but I think there's an equal amount of uh, same impulses, same guy in maybe now wise enough to know that for him to succeed, he needs to put himself in a different situation. Yeah. And well, you know, and it's also untestable. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that well, makes well, it well, easy. You know, the, the, the Steve Jobs clones that they have in the mm-hmm. underneath the giant circular ring, those will sprout in, in a couple of decades. Once we break through to the um, the uh, parallel universes, we'll be able to see all the different outcomes and find find the, the perfect universe. Um, uh, let's let's take a break. I've got another sponsor uh, to tell you about. I want to tell you about our friends who make GoToMeeting uh, from Citrix. Think about the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. Um, oh, my goodness. You know, if you've got people in the same place, it's hard to schedule them. If you've got people who are who are all over the Internet uh, in remote offices or working at home, it becomes even much more of a hassle. But you can meet your clients and your coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting. It's a smarter way to meet. You can meet with your team wherever you need to, wherever you are. It works on all sorts of different devices. Um, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone. No travel expenses required. No hassle of traffic. You don't have to go to their office. They don't have to come to your office. You don't have to call that person who works at home and have them make the long drive into the office to be in a one-hour meeting. You click a link. That's it. There are no sign-ups. There are no speed bumps. You click a link and you're in the meeting. You can use your webcam in HD quality. Everybody's there. It's like being in a room together. You can share your screens if you need to present. Uh, it all happens in real time. And with GoToMeeting, everybody is seeing what you're seeing. So everybody can get on the same page. Uh, very clever technology. I have used this for business meetings. I have used this for presentations. I've used it for demos where people want to show me a new piece of software that they've written that's going to be coming out and they'll project it on their screen and they'll they'll walk through the, the software with me, which is uh, super handy too. So sign up for GoToMeeting today. You can try it free for 30 days. There's nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com, G-O-T-O, Meeting. Dot com. Click the Try It Free button. Do it now, and your first meeting will be up and running in minutes. Go to meeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And thank you so much to Citrix and GoToMeeting for sponsoring Upgrade and a good friend. One thing, John, that I that I thought about, and I thought that uh, I do all these uh, you know podcasts like Upgrade with with uh, youngins who don't remember back in the olden times. Um, one of the things that I, when I read a book about Steve Jobs that I, I realize is the narrative takes us away from Apple, and I think in the in the public consciousness there's this thought that um, Steve Jobs left Apple and it all went to hell and then he came back, and it's almost like they can compress it like it took a year or something and then he turned around, but it was like a decade. It was more than a decade that he was gone. Um, and although they ended that period of time, Apple did, uh, on the brink of complete oblivion. And there's a fun section in the book about Fred Anderson taking over his CFO and walking in the door and thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, but, you know, that that missing decade when Steve Jobs wasn't there, uh, you know, that's when I became a Mac user. That's when I became somebody who devoured the, all the Mac magazines. And that's when I decided I, I wanted to write about Apple for my profession, um, so it couldn't have been all that terrible. And I feel like that decade has now just been kind of like thrown into the, into the trash as a failure. You, you know, I assume you became a Mac user during the same period, unless you're right at the very beginning, you know, cause jobs was out of there in 85. How could you not know this about me? I had the original Mac in 84. Only like, did you, did you have it in 84? Did you get it right yeah. then? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I assume, I assume that a lot of original Mac owners were actually like, well, it was 85 or well, it was the 512, but no, you're right. You had the 128. So it was 84. Okay. Yeah. So you came, you came in there and then Steve Jobs abandoned you or was sent, sent away. Well, he, here's the, I mean, so at that, what was I, nine or 10 or at uh, that year? So my recollection of that period was, you know, I got the first Mac and then I got issue number one of Macworld that told uh, the story of the first Mac yep. that gave me, that gave me a backstory for With this, that picture this, of the team. 
yep, they, 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 they gave me the backstory in this amazing machine that I had. And at that point, like from my kid's perspective, there was this amazing team of people and Steve Jobs was not elevated to the degree that he is now in mm. that story. It was all about the Mac team. And yes, he was the leader of the Mac team and he was the figurehead and, he, you know, but it was like it was it was like a team effort. And they made this amazing thing. And this amazing thing went out into the world. And from my perspective as a kid, then this company kept making new versions of this amazing thing. I don't know if I even noticed that Steve Jobs had been kicked yeah. out of the company because corporate, you know, politics are not interesting to a 10 or 11 year old. Yeah, who cares? All I knew was that I was reading Macworld, right? And eventually reading Mac user. And every issue, they would have some new technological development relating to the Mac that I would be excited about. And they, you know, they added color with the Mac too. And they kept making new machines. And like, that's what interested me and it was i i was too young to think what comes after the mac uh is there you know i i didn't spare a thought about by the time i was old enough to care enough about steve jobs have been gone i read all those stories and it's like well you know he was a loose cannon and it could never last uh and you know jean-louis gasset is my guy because he wanted to add slots and i think that's cool right <laughs> and, you know what i mean like this it, it, it seemed fine to me. Only later did I, as the company starts to go down the tubes, you realize, wait a second, this is a company that is iterating on a great idea, but is losing losing the plot. Like it doesn't it doesn't understand what what it is that made the Mac great. And when faced with any kind of challenge, like say Windows, had no idea to do it, just yeah. flailed wildly, and just you know, eventually almost became bankrupt. And then I'm just begging for them to buy BOS or something, anything to to rejuvenate this company but for a long stretch there when i was a kid it was all about the mac the next mac that was going to come out and every new mac was amazing yeah. like the the se was amazing the mac 2 oh my god color like the high, power you know, books the power high, books high, blew right, everybody power, away exactly mm -hmm. that was that was not steve jobs thing. the keyboard pushed back the trackball in the middle it's like what like that defined the laptop and just all the crazy frog design things i think it was the whole issue of mac world where they, they had frog design do like this is what the mac of the future could look like yep. i was i was eating that stuff up it was like yes that's cool i hated that issue so much but yeah I that know. Was, well, that, you that know, was the because the way it was framed was like, "Hey, Apple's designs stink now, so we hired Frog Design. MacWorld is here to fix Apple for you." Right. But, if, well, if, you Apple made, if Apple so made computers arrogant. out of out of uh, latex foam, they could look like they this. They could look like this. <laughs> Mac Mac user, we did a story that was the things from the Apple archive that were the products that were like the concept products that never yeah. existed, but at least oh. they were like from Apple. And similarly, they were like, "Wow, that's weird." Probably yeah, Knowledge Navigator was yeah. one of the first things I remember seeing go, Apple has no idea what it's doing. No. Like, <laughs> knowledge ever came out, came out but, it's like, seriously, guys? But but the guys who wrote Becoming Steve Jobs, they're business reporters. So they say basically, you know, the IBM PC came out and then Apple was irrelevant and Apple remained irrelevant for, for a decade. <laughs> yeah. And I think, well, wait, right. that was the entire period where I... I fell in love with the Mac, decided I want to write, read about it voraciously and then write about it. And they're just like, yeah, it's irrelevant. But from a business reporter's perspective, it was kind of irrelevant. But from a user's perspective, it was the we were the, you know, the 10% of people who chose to be different. And, and we loved those new Macs that came out. And the PowerBook was super influential. It goes against their narrative to say, oh, Apple did some interesting things when Steve Jobs wasn't there. But, you know, I, I, it makes me mad. Now, somebody recommended Infinite Loop, which I haven't read, which That's says me. that they, they do. Well, somebody else on twitter you also recommended infinite loop yes right? yes that was that's, a, that's always my go-to for like you want to read early apple history the best book i found that encompasses all of the early i think it ends with the imac uh yeah so it in, gets infinite, infinite loop is the best one it gets the lost decade it gets the decade where a lot of books that are about steve leave apple it's it's about apple 
Um, so I'm going to read that one because that I think that uh, might be the thing that hits the spot for me. But um, but I just think it's really funny that it gets it gets cast off with a hand wave and it like encompasses for me the entirety and for you almost the entirety of that time when you become like really obsessed with the Mac but, and, but, but, and care, but there and so, care about there it. There were so few of us though. That's why it gets brushed aside because it is not a pop like the popular story is Apple comes from nowhere and uh, as the Apple says ignites the personal computer revolution blah 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 and makes a bunch of rich people that's a popular story just because hey you know like one of the first big tech millionaire type stories right and the second story is research and apple becomes the biggest company in the world in between there it's only an interesting story for people who are interested in technology because there were just so right. few of us and we were looked upon as crazy people because only we could see the <laughs> things that were better about this computer if you put you know for us it's like how can you not see how different this is than than Windows 3.1. Like, are you serious now? Like, you think these are equivalent? Yeah, they both seem to have a mouse, basically the same, right? Yeah, what? Windows, like, and whatever. and it was like this this nuanced distinction that made us kind of snooty and weird. And it's clear that's not what the world wants. And we sort of uh, hung out in obscurity, really interested in this one little company making a small number of computers that uh, were increasingly irrelevant. And yet that company continued to make very interesting, exciting, good products right up to the point where it stopped really doing that and then kind of, you know, crumbled into dust. Like business-wise, the the company didn't have its act together, but product-wise, it it, it was doing amazing things. It did. I mean, in the chat room, we have a a quote from the New York Times from 1993 pointing out that during Scully's reign, company sales went from $800 a year to $8 a year. I mean, they, they they did grow. But they also became increasingly irrelevant. But I feel like there was a really good period in there where they were doing interesting things. But, you know, this is what you said. Um, What's the think of it this way? What's the market for becoming Steve Jobs? I feel like there's really two markets there. There's the market of people who just love Apple and want to read about Apple and they're the tech nerds. And, And then there's the market that's the business media market which i think these guys given their background that is really what they're targeting here this is a this is a book that's going to be read by people who want to learn lessons about about how steve jobs dealt with adversity and how mm-hmm. he built such a creative team and all of that and for for us uh, apple nerds we look at this book and and say uh, one we say things like i can't believe that they said that the that the uh, that the ibook was was black cuz it was the macbook which you know again the business people they don't care they don't care at all but um, we're just trying to glean the stuff that we think is interesting out of it because we think the technology story is interesting there um th- that's probably not what that book is meant for that book is that book is by business journalists and it's trying to make a lot of money from people who want to get you know inspiration from the life of steve jobs because they believe that they can be the you know the next steve jobs or they can learn how to be a good ceo by reading a lot of business books and 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 i think that's at the some of the conflict here and i realized that as i read that statement but i still kind of got offended because it's like hey you were just casting off this whole period where where I got really excited about this stuff and then wanted to read about it and wanted to write about it and you're like yeah it was irrelevant forget about it but from their perspective it totally was I get, I get it, it. yeah a more tech focused angle would focus on what are the similarities between the Apple of that era the Scully Apple like the the, the, the things that Apple did well uh, the PowerBook is a great example it, it is like the iPhone in that it's sort of redefined the form factor of an existing product and it was hot i mean it was like 
I remember reading stories about famous people spotted with power books. Like it was like the cool thing to be seen with in 1992. Right. And, and after and after that, every laptop eventually looked like a power book. Yeah. Right. There was not in the same way that eventually every phone looked like an iPhone, r- roughly speaking. And so the, the thing to compare would be like. What what is different? How how did things how did they snatch defeat from the jaws of victory in the Scully <laughs> error and the reverse? And, you know, because it was like the, the company that Jobs had founded had these good qualities. I mean, again, Jobs came and took over. He didn't fire all the employees and start a new company. The people who did all this stuff, like Johnny Ive, was there, right? They had yeah. him. They had him slapping ugly plastic cases around performers, right? Like, yeah. You well, know? He, I mean, he did the E Mate, and that that was interesting. And he put that little green triangle on the the on the G three. Uh, yeah, he did. He did Mac the G3. beautiful Newton Newton Message Pad one ten. Right, yeah. like he, like he, they were in. The, he did the, the the 20th anniversary Mac. Like those people yeah. were all in the company. All these people that did, did these amazing things, they just were not being utilized. And like that's that's the story. Is not so much, uh, you know, when G- Steve Jobs was gone, the company couldn't, couldn't do any good. And when he came back, they did better. How he didn't do the work himself. Those people are already there. And so it's it again in the same way that Steve Jobs was set up for failure. You had all these amazing smart people who were ready to do great things, and then management who like they did great things like in spite of management towards the end there not because of like right. they were not that the priorities were lost and again you have scully as the ceo didn't quite know well the what board to prioritize the board then also gets a lot i think needs to take a lot of the blame the, to use that jobs term again i think the board were a bunch of bozos because um when they got rid of scully um not to not to bring sports into this for a minute so forgive me but um you know, there there are stories about teams that fire the coach, and they fire the coach because they know who they're going to hire. And then there are those teams, usually bad teams, that fire the coach and then think, okay, now uh, let's start looking for a coach. And I feel like that's what the Apple board was like here, uh, which was, okay, we got to get rid of Scully. And then they were like, now what? Uh, hey, Michael Spindler sold a lot of computers in Germany. Let's try him out. Yeah. Do you? Do any of you guys know anybody who knows anything about yeah. computers? Gil Emilio is he has got a PhD and knows about semiconductors. Well, he's we a turnaround could, artist. We could he's hire a turnaround him. artist. We yeah. got a turnaround here. We need to get a, a turnaround specialist to come in. But that's artful. all it takes. You don't need to know anything about Apple. You just know how to turn companies around. Yeah. It's just a ship that's leaking from the, that. That is that they they do tell that story well. The Apple's a ship and it's got a leak and it's my job to get it to safe harbor and then he walks away. And everybody looks at each other and says, what about the leak? <laughs> Gil. Oh, Gil, Emilio. Fascinating, yes. fascinating. But so I think the board takes some of the blame because they, they made that moment. I was like, OK, Scully, it's not working. We need to do something else. And it's like, could they have made Apple? Um, could Apple have not maybe gone so far down in flames if they had brought somebody in who had a clue? Uh, maybe, maybe not. But they didn't bring in somebody who had a clue. They brought in well, Spindler I mean, and, and Emilio. To, to be fair to Scully, uh the apple was in essentially a losing position by the time they kicked steve jobs out like there was not they could even if they had just merely maintained like tried to, and they did to try to well, sort of yeah. maintain the course or whatever like the ibm pc was a real problem for them right because you you and i both know once the momentum started to go once the conventional wisdom became that the mac and apple are oddball yeah. and the rest of the world and serious business people are always going to use PCs with Windows and dot like that narrative is a big oh, problem yeah. for the Mac and and Apple even if Steve Jobs had been there Apple would have needed to do something dramatic to turn that around and so Scully did nothing to turn it around Scully was like uh, let's go with it fine we will we will be the boutique high end we're going to go after the artists we're going to go after desktop publishing like just you know they went in the direction they could go in and they milked that 
but they didn't have a, 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 they didn't have you know as Steve Jobs would say you milk the Mac for all it's worth and get started on the next big thing. Mm-hmm. They milked the Mac by fleeing from the fight that they were just didn't want to engage yeah. in at all, and they had no next plan. They had no next thing to replace it, so they were just like. Uh, they were getting while the getting's good, or whatever the expression is, right? And, well, and well, they they did do. I mean, they well, the took Newton a, was the Newton was their attempt at that. Well, but, so I know. mean, this is the, I, and I don't necessarily believe this, but let me say it just to try it on um, as a defense of John Scully. It's like, okay, what did, what was John Scully's approach here? They created premium price products in specific markets where they did well, and that they could charge that extra money, and they did well with that, and they were profitable for a long time with that. Well, they did. They did well, but not in big picture. Like they, no, they, they no. found their niche, their, their corner of the market, and they said we can wring a lot of money out of this exactly. corner of the market because it's a lucrative corner of the market. Right. But they had no sort of end game. They but, had no. But if you're like, Scully, sustainable business. If you're Scully, you've already, the battle's already lost. You're never going to be the IBM PC. So instead, you're like, well, look, we can build a business off here in the corner and, and, and all of that. And then to Scully's credit, he's like, hand, you know, let's do a handheld computer. That's right, a really that was, good that idea. Was, right? That was his vision, and like that's the amazing thing. Like that. that all right. So two things there. Well, <laughs> like oh the battery's already lost we're never going to be on the NPC he was in there early enough that that wasn't true he didn't have to be that fatalistic like in hindsight we can say oh well like the thing they were set up they needed to do something big but in the beginning you know in 85 when Steve Jobs is just out the battle's not entirely lost at that point it is still winnable with, hmm. without Steve Jobs if you if you took it but he's like no we're not even going to try for that battle right and then the Newton that just goes to show that, like he wanted to be a technical visionary. Like he wanted to, to show off his tech chops and he had a reasonably good idea about the whole personal digital assistant thing. And the people at Apple were so amazing that they actually did make him yep. really close to everything that we know would eventually define the future of mobile computing with the Newton. Like they were so ahead of their time. They were just, they were just a little bit too early and made a couple of a few mistakes and the company wasn't really behind them and they really shouldn't have launched when they launched. Like, just you know the newton was 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 close and the fact that newton was that close with so with such a vague kind of with such not incompetent leadership but with sort of fumbling leadership it just shows how much talent there was sitting there in apple how many talented passionate people who were just waiting to be asked to do something great that they just they just misfired by a little bit and then it went off the side and it ricocheted and just kind of you know fizzled out into an egg freckle egg crackles uh yep. poof of dust eat just up, like the drawings martha. on a newton right eat up martha Right. And so like, you know, it just it's it's that's why I think it wouldn't have take you didn't need Steve Jobs to turn things around against the PC. You just needed somebody who had a little bit more of a clue about what this the, the situation would be like. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's it's an interesting it's fa- this is why I'm fascinated by that period because there's like it's not like it was a total void and there were tumbleweeds blowing through. There was interesting things that happened there and they weren't successful really but they were they were interesting and i i literally my first um my first month on the job at mac user as an intern was when they introduced the newton so you can so i i was boarding a sinking ship let me tell you let me tell you um and it was fascinating but that was by the time i got to to mac user the the I remember my first briefing at Apple was for the power for the the quad was a Quadra six thirty I want to say it was a three it was not a four digit number so it was not a Power Mac um, and I was there for the Power PC transition but it was like a Quadra six thirty I want to say which is the weird it had the TV tuner and it had like a motherboard that you could slide out the back which was weird um, and I I think of that era and I think that was when things really started to get strange at Apple that was when they did the Mac TV. Um, 
that they, they yeah. launched all the performas, 80 billion different performas. They were selling them through Sears. Yeah, yep. it, was, it was a confusing time. And the one at JCPenney had a different number than the one at Sears because maybe the bundle was different of like software that they put on them. It was, yeah. it was, it was a very confusing time. And that's actually when I entered. And so I think about that, that period now. And I, I didn't get to see as a professional, I didn't get to see the, even the heyday of the Mac. It was really all start, starting to spin apart in, in, uh, in what was that the summer of 93 yeah and and you know thinking about the newton like again how close it was the fact that so the newton didn't quite hit its mark and then like more or less hot on its heels came the palm, palm yeah to, to show that like you were just off by a little bit out the palm was it. like the palm was like just so much more primitive and so much mm-hmm. smaller and so much cheaper. And like the, the, the business narrative then was, see, Apple, you tried to make this big, fancy, expensive thing that can do a lot of stuff when really you should have just gone cheaper because the most important thing was small, cheap, lightweight. Uh, and th- that was totally the narrative that, that Apple that, that Apple had, uh, had, had decided to go sort of like everything in the kitchen sink. We're just going to make everything a revolution and this is a platform that can replace the Mac and it's this amazingly powerful thing and there's data soup instead of files and it's just like, why don't you just do something like handwriting recognition? We'll just do graffiti on this little dedicated area. We're not even like you write on the screen. It's like, why didn't you just do the stupidest thing? Like you dummy Apple, you're always trying to do these sort of highfalutin, yeah. like amazing, everything's got to be a revolution like the Mac. What dummies you are. When Steve Jobs came back and he, you know, his first big breakout product, not maybe not the iPod, but certainly the iPhone. They did exactly what the new was trying to do. We're revolutionizing everything. We are going to make the most amazing thing you've ever seen. No, we're not going to make you write in a little area. No, we're not going to make you use a pen. It's like the iPhone was the Newton strategy, not the Palm strategy. It was the Newton strategy where they actually did it, right? Yeah. And it's like the, the business narratives love to just find out who the winner is in the market and then retroactively make a narrative that says, this is the way you should do things. If you're going to do right. something, you should always make the simplest, most primitive things possible. Don't don't reach for the stars because you'll never hit them and it's pointless. And it's like, they hit it with the Mac, they hit it with the iPhone, maybe they'll hit it with the watch, maybe not, but it's like the iPhone was just totally the Newton strategy and not the Palm strategy. And now, what's the business narrative around the, I guess the business narrative around the iPhone is Steve Jobs' magic. I don't yeah. know. Well, I do think that, that one of the good things, and I think I said this when the Isaacson book came out too, is one of the positive things about all these Steve Jobs biographies and being pitched at business people and being taught in business schools and all of those things is I feel like, yeah, if they take away Steve Jobs' magic, then what can you do? You know, be magic. But um, I do think like for all those years where they said, look, what Apple did, don't pay attention to it. The answer is not to do, you know, interesting things. The answer is to go as cheaply as possible. And like the antithesis of what Apple was always about. And and Apple's success has made it hard to um, hard to go down that path and, and ignore what Apple has done. And and so even though I don't entirely agree with a lot of these books or even the, some of the premises that, that they have, I, I think it's interesting that we may end up with a generation of business people who have values that are maybe a little closer to Apple in a way that would not have been the case with anybody coming up in the 80s and 90s when Apple was like poison. <laughs> well, the lesson should not be like, I hope the lesson at this point is that conventional wisdom is often wrong. Yeah. And so like, don't do like, you need to license your operating system. Well, no, you don't. You need to do what Steve Jobs does. Well, no, you don't. What you need to do may be entirely different than what Bill Gates did, what Steve Jobs did the first time, what Steve Jobs did the second time. Like that should be the lesson, not whatever the, the most recent successful thing is. Do that. That's what all leaders should do. The lesson yep. should be that, a, a wide variety of strategies can and have worked, and it really you should really just not look back and say, 
I need to do whatever, uh, you know, uh, Facebook did because I want to be the next Facebook. Like, hopefully that is a lesson that anyone with with a long view would take. And you're right that having lots of these different stories kills the previous narrative like that you have to you have to just make the software because software is high margin and you need to license your operating system. And like, you know, because for the longest time, Windows was so dominant that it was like Bill Gates has defined the model, the business model for the future of Microsoft. (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. And that was the only possible either be Microsoft or be bought by Microsoft. And then Apple killed that one. But now it shouldn't be like, oh, you got to do the Apple strategy. Right. No, we need someone else to come along and kill the Apple strategy by doing whatever the opposite of Apple is and being fabulously successful and, uh, when we're old grandparents, right? Although I, I would rather have uh, today's uh, up-and-coming business people look at Apple and say, hey, Apple cares about design and is trying to build products that people want to buy instead of just assembling technology together. And that's what we should do when we build products. I feel like that would be a good lesson for people who want to be tech people to learn. And I think that, that some up-and-coming tech people have learned that lesson as opposed to the old lesson because the old lesson was literally like just take a bunch of crap make it compatible sell it for as cheap as you can and and then move on to the next well, thing that's our bitter mac user perspective yeah, it on. Is. but i think but, but i think it builds like because the, the bill gates lesson really was uh, uh the old own and control mantra from apple like it's really important for you to understand what you uh, what the your power position is in the market like you need to to be the master of your own destiny. You need to make sure IBM lets you license MS DOS to other people. Stick that clause in your contract because that will be that will make the future of your company. That you need to be shrewd about your business deals and understand where the value is in in, in the future. Right, and that argument didn't go away. Steve Jobs did all that in his second run at Apple. He made sure that his business arrangements and everything were set up. Every like it didn't mean he did the exact same thing, but he made sure that he controlled the platform. Mm-hmm. That his deals with the carriers were so lopsided that he so that he controlled the experience with the whole app store, so that Apple could control the applications, the you know security and viruses and all this other stuff. Right? Those that was him playing out the Bill Gates lessons, and then of course the Apple lesson is at this point technology is ubiquitous enough that it's like a consumer product and you have to incorporate design, right? And then maybe the Apple Watch lesson is you have to incorporate fashion or whatever. The next one is going to be, I learned the Bill Gates lesson, I learned the Steve Jobs lesson, I learned the Apple Watch lesson, and then I'm going to build on that. So they really do, it's not like one counteracts the other, it's you have to learn all the lessons and incorporate them, possibly in a different way. Like the lesson Steve Jobs learned from uh, from Microsoft of like seeing how they're, seeing how they're positioned at the, at the top of the market was uh, uh was only possible because of the smart moves they made early on about which parts they controlled and which parts other people controlled. Apple took that lesson to heart and used it for hardware, saying we have to we don't have to own all the factories, but we have to make sure all our dealings with the people who make who make hardware for us are such that we are in the position of power always that we control like and you know if they make our Macs, we'll have this discussion all over again of like we don't even want Intel making the chips because that is too much of, of taking control out of our hands. So they're sort of using the Microsoft strategy that they did with software and controlling the market through software and doing it on the hardware side. Yeah, and and, and in reality, um the, you know the sad thing not to be a little cynical but the the, the lesson people are going to take most people are going to take from things like this is oh i'm going to just do that <laughs> which is not you know i'm going to do what steve jobs did which is well, not they're, they're welcome to try i mean but like i mean <laughs> Good luck. you know it's, it's not like these are all possible models that can work but if you're looking if you're just looking to have a successful business almost any of these strategies can work if you execute them well if right. you're looking to become the next apple the next facebook the next microsoft 
you will probably need to incorporate the lessons of all the past mm. people and do something and, and repurpose them for, you know, the modern age, which is going to be different than the situation was for any of those past people. Let me let me uh, take a break for our last sponsor. It's MailRoute. If you imagine a world without spam, viruses, or bounced email, MailRoute can provide it. You can open your email and see only the legitimate mail you want and need to receive. The way it works, MailRoute servers intercept your mail. You set your MX record on your domain, and you do need to know what that is and how to do it. You point that at MailRoute. MailRoute servers take in all your inbound mail, and they filter out the bad stuff. And then they pass the good stuff onto your server. So your server only ever sees the good stuff. You don't have to maintain any special hardware or software. MailRoute handles it all for you in the cloud and their intelligent software can uh, detect what is bad, uh, what's got viruses, what is spammy, and uh, filter it out so it doesn't even get to you. It is easy to set up and reliable. It's trusted by large universities and corporations. If you're a desktop user, you'll find it a super simple interface to use. It's easy to set up. You can, you've can you got a web interface to set all your different mail route settings for you as a single user. And if you're an email administrator or an IT pro, they've got all the tools that you need built for you. There's an API for account management. There's support for LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mail bagging. Mike isn't here to Give me a verbal high five for mailbagging. Outbound relay, everything else that you'd want from the people who handle your mail. And the best part, you can start a risk-free trial. There's no credit card required to sign up. You sign up, change your MX records to point them at MailRoute and your mailbox, and hardware will be completely protected. It's simple and effective, so give it a try. And if you're an upgrade listener, you can receive 10% off of the lifetime of your MailRoute account. So after that free trial is done and you want to sign up, you have to go to MailRoute.net slash upgrade. Go there now and uh, sign up. And uh, after the free trial, 10% off of the lifetime of your account. Thank you to MailRoute for keeping my mailbox spam-free and for being a good friend of Upgrade and of Relay FM. Thank you, MailRoute. So, John, um, at dinner at the Ool Conference, I was sitting with, uh, at the big banquet, I was sitting with Mike and with uh, Marco and Tiff and with Georgia and Serenity was, no, Serenity was at a different table, I think. A bunch of, a bunch of people, a bunch of really good people. And, um, uh, and, and John Gruber appeared as a, a, with one of those little telepresence robots, on, and he actually fell off the stage as a robot. So he'd had too much to drink, I think. Um, but we were discussing... Uh, a concept that you and I have talked about before, which is uh, the argument about what's a robot and what's not a robot. Um, and so I wanted to ask you uh, briefly before we, before we wrap the show, uh, are you willing to, to discuss a few uh, posits in the, in the robot or not uh, genre? If you insist, but if we're ever going to have our own podcast about this, we're just stealing our own thunder. Or, or are we promoting so I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm going to limit it, but I you know I I'm excited about the possibility that we could do a podcast in which we determine whether things are robots or not. Um, but I I wanted to so so this is where it started is we had the incomparable draft about uh, we had computers and we had robots and the computer draft was recorded first and somebody picked Kit from Knight Rider as a computer and so then in the in the robot draft somebody tried to pick Car the evil Knight Rider Car. And I said that wasn't a robot, and that that was, uh, and that that led to an entire discussion that we had over dinner in Ireland because we were really exciting people about are, what. Are you leaving out the most important 
part of your selection. Oh, and then later Steve Letts drafted the the 80s dance the robot yes, and I, yes. I and I said nice that was a robot. Admit, yes. yes. You said you let's repeat this again for the yes. audience. Yes. You said that the, the, robot, the dance the robot was the a dance robot. The from the 80s is a robot. Yes. I did say that. That that led to me yelling at you about <laughs> not did, knowing what is a robot and what is not a robot. I admit that that was indefensible, but I felt like Steve I had to give something to Steve at that point. I felt Never like give he needed to Steve. it. <laughs> no, that's true. That's a strong point on your part. So, 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 without getting too far down here, because I, I, I want this to be a promotion from our glorious new podcast that we will do at some point, maybe possibly uh, about whether things are robots or not. Um, leaving the fact that the robot that's a dance is totally not a robot aside, um, what do you think of this question that? Um, and this was the one of the most divisive things at dinner was like Kit. Okay, from Knight Rider is is an intelligent car. So it's it's mobile on its own. It doesn't. It's got a voice. It can think for itself. It can talk to others. But it doesn't have like arms or anything. It just kind of is a self driving car that's intelligent. So so this is this is what I want you to to think about and, and tell me is what makes what makes something a robot versus not a robot? Because because I view Kit I view Kit as a computer. Podcast. Oh, all right. all right. Well, I mean, I, I just think I, I, I think one of the questions is about vehicles, because the, the argument that I that I made was, if you think Kit is a robot, then do you think the USS Enterprise is a robot? Because it, too, is a vehicle with an intelligent computer that can even create its own sentient beings in its holodeck if it wants to. Yeah, as I think we discussed when uh, thinking about this podcast or robot or not <laughs> in the first episode you would imagine that we would have to sit down and hammer out the definition of a robot, and then all subsequent episodes would simply be applying this definition to other to things in a boring things. way. Because once we've defined it, there's no point in having any other episodes. If we can come to an agreement no, on what right. a robot is, it's obvious what, what you know, so... Which means we also need to disagree about the definition of what a robot is. Or there's yeah, but also then, the then that's like that's that intractable. Like if we're going to convince each mm, other or whatever. Interesting. Uh, so do you want me to make a ruling on Kit versus the Enterprise? Uh, no, well, I, I mean, I I don't know. I feel like I feel like that that is an interesting debate to have about if a, a an autonomous vehicle that is itself sentient is that a robot? Because what makes a robot a robot is it that it is mobile and intelligent. Um, or is it that it, it, it sort of appears like a, a, a human being? Well, let, let's, let's do something easy, just as a, a proof of concept here. The telepresence robot that John Gruber was driving around the stage at Ool. Robot not, or not? Not a robot. Not a robot. Because it, all it is is a piece of hardware. It's an iPad on a stick. With if you could put John, John Gruber, Gruber inside there, and that's the only place John Gruber existed, then we're talking about robots. Interesting. But John Gruber is not inside no. the thing. It is merely just a an iPad on wheels, and he's sitting comfortably in his house. Okay, that's so, good. But if John Gruber only existed inside that little stick on wheels, robot. Inside, no. Okay, so now let me let me follow this up just a little bit. Again, just we're workshopping here. If John Gruber's brain was put in a computer, but it was like in a mainframe, like they have on television whenever they have to hack something, it's a mainframe. It was a big supercomputer somewhere that was just large mm-hmm. enough to hold mm-hmm. the entirety of John Gruber. But it was like in a big bunker in like underneath the Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was connected to the internet to that telepresence robot on stage in Ireland. Is that a robot or is that just a computer that's controlling a, a thing? Is that, is that different? 
Yeah, that's different because uh, so the he big mainframe. The big mainframe thing is not a robot. Again, it was. It, was, it would have to be the only place that John Gruber okay. just would have to be in that thing. All right, that it's that it's moving around. You know I what think I mean? we're making progress. I think we're making progress. Now, the a Roomba robot or not? Sure. Okay, so so it doesn't have to be sentient. But I mean, no. I, it, I mean, yeah. Otherwise, okay. we're we can only talk about science fiction, then, right? We don't okay. have any actual sentient machines, so that's good. Is Siri a robot? No. <laughs> Good. I think I I think this proves just what how about, brilliant the robot or not is. Love a robot, <laughs> Jason. That's an interesting question, John. Well, Webster's Dictionary defines love. Yeah. <laughs> what is love, Jason? It's Baby, a ro- don't hurt me. Love is a robot. Don't hurt me. No more. <laughs> All right. Well, John, it has been a pleasure having you on Upgrade. This was actually a lot of fun, um, and uh, you'll be happy to know that in the great tradition of Upgrade, we have lots and lots of things on the show notes that uh, we didn't get to but that's fine we all that Robot always or not is at the bottom we got everything didn't yeah we? i skipped some i skipped some stuff in the middle because we've been we've been going on we, oh yeah we, yeah, got, no, we, got, well, we talked yep. about the old times we complained about books we did a lot of good stuff so i, I you know thank you so much for coming on I, I had that thought when when mike said i can't do this i'm going to be on vacation um i have to go to dracula's castle He's so lazy isn't he yeah i mean i some of us take our microphones with us when we go Seriously, on vacation like what's his problem like he can't do a, a simple podcast well, like what else, the, what else he, does he have to do with his day he's on vacation he, with his girlfriend and i think that you know unlike us who are old married people um you know he he needs to not like tell his girlfriend i'm gonna go away for two hours and do a podcast so i think uh he, he does like one podcast a month right he's not busy at all yeah, I've, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's six, <laughs> he does more podcasts than I do. I know. Which I'm is kidding. shocking. But it's good because when people say, oh my God, I can't believe you do four podcasts a week, I go, yeah, you should meet Mike. Mike. does four podcasts a day. Yeah. Have you checked that he's not twins or triplets? Well, I can't prove that because I only ever saw one of him. I have seen him in real life and, you know, and in fact just did, but I, I, you know, you can't prove that there isn't another one right, well, somewhere doing If you podcasts. saw him, if you saw him at Ool and like, you saw him for five minutes, and then you real, and then you saw him for five minutes later, and you realized when you previously saw him, he didn't have a beard. But now that he does, you're like, yeah. wait a second, you, you couldn't would, have grown that beard that fast. You would really recognize if Mike didn't have a beard because it is a prominent, it is a prominent beard. What I'm saying, maybe it is a one, Lincoln, of, one of the Mikes has a beard. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, I mean, that would not be a sufficient. You couldn't take that Mike as his duplicate. If he, if he, next he, next time you see him, just Mike. put your hand in there and pull mm. really hard because that could be fake. Interesting. Interesting. Well, so I, this is this is my point, is that if Mike does have doubles, he didn't bring them with him, so far as we know. Or they they had the same beard that he had. They were not beardless. He must leave the beardless Mike duplicate at home just to record and sends the beardy one out in public. Well, anytime he wants to briefly have a normal life, I'm happy to fill in. Well, I appreciate that. And it was fun to talk about computer things with you, which we've talked about before, just not when we were recording on a podcast. So yes, that is, that is definitely true. That was a nice, it was a nice thing. So thank you. And of course, everybody should, uh, I don't know why they wouldn't have already done this, but they should listen to the Accidental Tech Podcast, which you can find on iTunes or at atp.fm. And John, Sing you- Sing a song, are, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and John is on Twitter, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A, Syracusa. You got it. Ah, uh, I know it well. And uh, as as always, uh, this episode, <laughs> always and forever, will be at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 30, or the show notes are in your podcast app of choice. Uh, Mike will be back next week with me. Thank you once again to our sponsors, 1Password, GoToMeeting, and MailRoute. 
And uh, thanks to everybody out there for listening. We will see you soon. Is Mike going to be re-energized when he comes back? Or drained of all blood because he visited Dracula's castle. Hmm. I didn't know that he was there. Yeah. Yeah, he was high in the Carpathian Mountains. Dracula was my, my senior class play. I know every time he mentions that he's going to Romania, I, I say, oh, it's, it's a remote region in Romania, because that's what Transylvania is. That was one of my lines. Where's Transylvania? <laughs> it's a remote region in Romania. You think about that when you see your kids doing activities at school and you're like, yeah. you're going to remember some stupid part of this activity that you're doing for the rest of your life, so... Uh, whatever line you have in the school yep. play, be prepared to know that when you're 40. Forever. <laughs> That's right. I hope it's a good one. <laughs> yeah. It's a remote region in Romania. Yours, That's I don't answer. know how you did doing that. No, I had, actually, I think in that play I had the most dialogue, but I wasn't one of the stars. I was like the guy who owned the house where the play takes place. So as the host, I kept appearing and and saying things that were sort of like either expository or just moving the story along. And so I had lots and lots of dialogue to say that I had to memorize. I've never done anything like that before. <laughs> but um, but I, yet my character was not particularly interesting in any way. I was not Dracula. I was not Von it was Helsing. Setting, it was setting you up for your career as a journalist. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was just the guy there saying, hey, this is my house. And, uh, oh, Transylvania? It's a remote region in Romania. In the high I meant, in the Carpathian I meant in the way that it was not setting you up for your career yeah. as an actor. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Well, <laughs> that was the perfect part. Actually, you could argue that having me have lots of dialogue was maybe not the best choice, but um, you know, it was yeah, it was the part I was born to play, Mr. Generic Exposition Guy. <laughs> no acting required, just read the lines. And so I did.